Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Our host today is Joanne Perry, a longtime activist and lifelong pacifist. We're welcoming Haupei Lee today. Ms. Lee is an advocate who specializes in domestic and sexual assault representation. She's an advocate working with specific cultures and she serves as a victim of sexual assault advocate within not only Minnesota, but within the Eau Claire Hmong Mutual Assistance Association. Welcome. We are delighted to have you as part of our ongoing commitment to be a voice for justice, non-militarism, and for social change. Pei has come today with her commitment to stand for women, particularly women who have experienced and been victimized by sexual assault, rape. Her commitment extends to her education. Her degree in social work is just one step on this path toward achieving her dream of a world and a culture free of the trauma and the consequences of sexual violence. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Please let us know a bit about yourself. Tell us, um, tell us your interests, maybe a little about your early life, and really what interests us is what made you choose the life of helping others. Sure. Um, so my name is Haupei or Haupei, um, and uh, I think I've, I mentioned before, um, I'm new to the community, so I moved here from Oklahoma, Wisconsin, and I was actually the first Hmong sexual assault advocate. Straight out of college, I started doing this work. Um, the Hmong community is so near and dear to my heart. Right after college, I started working as a sexual assault advocate, and it was offered to me just because of the work that I've been doing already within the Hmong community. And so here, I'm also still doing some um, culturally specific domestic and sexual violence advocacy work. So one thing that I really love about doing this work is meeting the many Hmong individuals who have so many more years of experience with this work and who are so um, supportive and upbringing of each other. You know, I think growing up as a Hmong woman, especially, um, that there has always been negative language around us. You know, the terminology um, that we as Hmong folks speak has always been revolved around negative language more than positive. But I do believe that, you know, that terminology is changing and shifting. So when I started doing this work, um, that was one of the things that I've experienced. And it was shocking to me, really. And I felt so relieved that there were people who were actually seeing me as who I am and seeing my struggles and my experiences as a strength and not judging me for my past or my family's reputation, just asking me like what my story was. You know, and I think that's such an important part of healing. It's such an important part of ending violence, right? And so transforming generations really cultivates that space for us to be accepting and creating change in our community. So just a little bit about um, transforming generations. We are an affiliate of the Building Our Future Global Community Campaign. So this campaign is worldwide, but Transforming Generations is the Minnesota-based organization of that. And our goal is 
to change practices, behaviors, and beliefs to end abuse and build safe, strong, and thriving families. So our purpose is to develop and support a network of community organizers, advocates, and social service providers who will raise awareness about gender-based violence and serve families and individuals and affect policy change. That sounds like a real mouthful. That's a <laughs> lot of pieces right there. I'm going to drag you back just a little bit, if you don't mind. You talked earlier about negative language. Can you give me an example of what you were speaking of? Yeah, sure. So I think growing up, it was always the language is always kind of, don't do this. Or if you do this, bad things are going to happen to you. It was more like more of like a letdown than really like trying to be supportive, even though I think the intentions of it is to be supportive. One thing that I heard a lot growing up was don't skip school, don't play games, don't go outside, don't have friends. It was kind of that language where I feel like it should have been more like stay in school, focus on studying or focus on, you know, what this can do for your future. Have friends, have supportive friends, learn how to find people who support you, you know, like I think that's the kind of language that as a young individual growing up that I didn't hear a lot of and I think it was something that was really needed. It sounds essential to me. I do have a question. Uh, I understood from what you said earlier that it was more gender-based negativity. Is that true or is that, was it ac across the genders? Um, I think it's it, it can be across genders. Um, gender roles play a really big part in our community. As Hmong women, I can only speak from my own experiences as Hmong women. Um, and so everybody has their own experiences. For me, it was more of like knowing my role as a woman, learning how to cook, right? Or learning, like doing chores, taking care of my siblings, not being able to go outside or like have friends or do extracurricular activities, right? Whereas I think for my brothers, it was totally different. There was no like, structure there for them and they could do whatever they wanted and they could you know argue back or talk back if they wanted because it was their right as boys which is so terribly unfair and I'm sure you thought about it all the time <laughs> yeah and I still think about it and I you know and I as I look at younger kids growing up my little cousins and my nieces and nephews and you know I'm like wow that is not the language that I'm going to talk to them with. How many brothers and sisters do you have? So I have two brothers and one sister. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was pretty even. And I was fortunate enough that my family were not super traditional. And so my sister and I, we grew up very rebellious in a way where we're just kind of like, why are we always doing this? And why do we have to listen? And why do we why can't we speak up? I heard someone on this series of and thank God for our producer. Uh, who spoke about the patriarchal system getting in the way of young men's actual growth patterns, especially in the Hmong community. I'm hearing almost the same thing from you, but reflected from a different mirror. Mm -hmm. So tell me, what do you think the consequences are of boys growing up without structure, with the freedom to do whatever they want, versus the girls who have this pretty intense and limiting structure? Yeah, so I think, you know, and not to undermine Hmong men at all, it really created a space for them to really not have to try, really not have to work hard for anything. And can it gives that privilege and entitlement to them, right, where they're just kind of like, okay, whatever I do in the world, it's just going to work. It's just going to work itself out. It's going it, to, it'll be fine because it's always been that way. And I think Hmong women, we don't really see it this way and we don't think about it, you know, because as a Hmong women, we're living it, but we have so much resilience so much perseverance that's kind of like we always have that like fighter in us 
So I think that that's the difference is that we're always fighting for more and for better. That's a very interesting answer. Thank you for that. Others in the series have discussed the causes of domestic abuse in their in their opinions, of course, as related to the patriarchal structure. And I know that your organization, Transforming Generations, is addressing that to some degree. I assume that is a big focus of theirs. But do you share the view that the patriarchal system, uh, the patriarchal culture that you grew up in, is creating or is a cause or is related in any way to the issues of domestic abuse? Yeah, I, I believe that patriarchy plays a humongous role in domestic violence. I think we, we talked about it a little bit, you know, how men are, or boys automatically are entitled. You know, the, from the moment that they are born, they are already entitled and they already have this privilege. So when we talk about gender-based violence, when we talk about roots of violence, it really goes down to that patriarchy. You know, in a world where men make all the decisions, men have all the power, men are valued over a woman, right? It causes an imbalance of power. And that leads to domestic violence because they feel that they are entitled to be listened to. They feel that they are entitled to make the choices that they make, whether they are healthy or not. And, you know, that creates a, such a big divide and such a big barrier, especially with the Western culture, too, right? Because then now we have two systems to juggle, right? We have our own Hmong system, and then we have the American or westernized system and it's kind of like each have their own laws and we have to know how to abide by both and we have to know how to navigate both i think one of the things that get people in our community so angry is like the um the justice system in general right where if, if police get involved like law enforcement is involved it's not they don't look at it as what did this this um abuser do you know and why is he going to jail it's kind of they look at it like why did you call the police? That's kind of how they view it. And You're talking about the people in your world, not yes. necessarily the greater American no, culture. No, no, oh. just this is our community specifically. And, you know, there's a lack of trust in law enforcement in the legal system. And that's not anybody's fault. And I think all communities of color or all marginalized communities feel this way. I agree. And I think, I'll go out on the limb here, I think that every victimized woman feels the same way too, no matter mm -hmm. what color she is. She's bad person for calling the police. I hear it all the time in the prison. I had got sent back to jail because the neighbor called the police on me and she it was her fault because she was yelling and screaming. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that um, it's one of those things that crosses every culture. Mm -hmm. And I still want to cry about it every time I think about it. Silence appears to be a required component in all domestic abuse cases. How does that impact the shame, the fear, and the panic that the people who are being victimized experience? We already kind of know how their neighbors are reacting, but how about the victims here? I think it's the exact opposite. I think fear, shame, and panic, um, that those are big components of being silent. I think for our community, having that fear of being shamed is the biggest component why people don't disclose about domestic abuse. Our community we focus as a collective, right? Where the well-being of the community comes before the well-being of the individual. It, you know, we have this term that we always say, it takes a village to raise a child. And it's so true. Growing up, I had like so many relatives around me all the time. I'm sure, you know, a lot of my Hmong brothers and sisters, they can say the same thing. And it really takes more than just one or two people to raise a person. 
So I think, you know, that's great. It's a great thing that we have in our community that we can do that. But it's also very harmful when it comes to violence. Right, because a lot of times the victim is being told to not say anything, to not disclose, because it's going to hurt the family, the clan. It's going to hurt their own reputation. So I want to go back to an earlier question then. What in you was pulled out and what was the story behind your deciding to stand for the victims because we kind of passed over that. What is your story? Yeah, so, you know, um, like I said, the Hmong community is so near and dear to my heart. I felt like growing up, I always felt like there was a part of me that was missing. There was that part of my Hmong identity that I didn't have. My family, we don't, we're not traditional, so we don't um, practice shamanism. We're Christian, and I grew up in a single parent home, so my mom was divorced when we were really young. Um, She experienced a lot of domestic violence. And I think we were so fortunate that my grandparents were so supportive of her and they were, they took her back without questioning when they encouraged her to leave her abusive relationship and they encouraged her to continue to go to school. And you know, when I, when I talk about um, resilience and I talk about perseverance, I really like, I really see my mom's face because she has so much resilience. Like she's been through so much and we were so young. We didn't really know how to support her. I don't really have a lot of memories of the abuse. I think that was really like that really played a big part in to why I care so much about this work. My friends, they always tell me that I need to learn how to take my advocacy hat off. But I'm like, I, I truly live and breathe this work. It's not an eight to five job for me. You know, this is like my life. And I think a lot of us who do this work, we feel this way. And a lot of us who do this work, we have some sort of personal experience that really ignites that fire in us to to continue to do this work. You know, I think um, with the scope of this work, we really see that every Hmong individual is affected by domestic violence in some way. So whether it's yourself, whether it's somebody that you know, we're, we always talk about it. We, we talk about domestic violence all the time, but we don't frame it that, in that context. A lot of things that I heard growing up was my friends um, had like stepmoms. That was like one of the biggest things that I think growing up I've always heard. And it was so normal for us to just talk about it in that way, like, oh, my half-siblings or, oh, my stepmom. But when we really think about it, it is harmful. There's a lot of domestic violence happening that is kind of just normal for us. I'm, I'm confused a little bit here. Um, when you talk about domestic violence as related to being a stepchild or a half-sibling, are you referring to the domestic violence that happens between parent and child, or are you still talking about spousal violence? So it, it can, I think it can be both. One of my very, very close friends, um, she has a stepmom. And yes, there was spousal abuse going on, but there was also um, a lot of, like, I wouldn't categorize it as, like, neglect, but it was a lot of, like, favoritism. Her dad would would support her half-siblings way more than her and her siblings. And she had a uh, one of her half-siblings at the same age. They were in the same grade. They went to the same school. But you could clearly see which child was favored more. When I think about that, like she talks about it like it's so normal, but it's 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 really harmful. Like it still traumatizes her till this day, you know, and she doesn't have a very good relationship with her dad because of what he did. And it's it's not saying that she's not a good person or, you know, her dad is not a good person or it's not saying that. It's just saying those things affect people long into their life. There are ways of intervening in domestic 
or marital difficulties that are not available or utilized in the Western culture. The use of elders and other tra tribal practices do come to mind, at least to me. Does your organization seek to explore what might be perceived as the best of the culture when working with victims, and I assume also working with the perpetrators of the assault? So Transforming Generations, we work on a more macro level to provide community organizing and to come together to remove harmful practices. So we don't do direct services, but when we are in those spaces, we're not looking to see who's a victim and who's a perpetrator. You know, we're looking more as a, a collective and as a whole as whatever your past is, if you want to change or you want to change and you're here. So how can we help you with that? One of the really big things that we strive to do is learning how to strategize and to support our community by raising awareness um, about these forms of violence and then in particular, you know, gender-based violence. We can still have our traditional practices without these abusive practices. And I'm going to ask the question then, what helps with the healing, with the regaining of hope? And more specifically, what have you actually learned doing this work that surprised you? I believe that healing is a lifelong process and that everybody heals differently and everybody heals at different rates. I think that the biggest contribution to healing is validation, right? Validation is so essential to healing. And I, I think especially when you're a victim and especially in our community, that there's not a lot of validation going on. You know, like validation that, yes, these bad things happen to you and you've experienced these things, but no, that doesn't make you a bad person. Your experiences and your past doesn't make who you are and it doesn't affect who you are going to be. And I think that in a community, people don't say that to each other. And I think a lot of times we just need to hear that. And then that is an opening to healing, right? It was really a difficult journey for me to learn how to validate myself. It's still a journey. And I think it's for everyone, it's still a journey, right? To learn how to validate yourself. And that's the most important thing, right? People can validate you all you want, but if you can't come at peace with yourself in that way, then your healing really, really doesn't um, extend or expand. Uh, I think learning how to do that really, um, especially doing with the work that I do too, like it really um, supported me in, in providing advocacy for the people that I work with too. How does transforming generations and working with generations going forward, can you give us some examples of how they would work in this process? So what we do is we create community events. We were supposed to have an event in April for Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And that was just, um, it was just going to be like an open mic event and people can just come and enjoy some music, enjoy performances, just kind of relax and learn how to, to heal in that way. Break that vow of silence is what you're looking at. Yeah, and you know, I think healing is so, like I said, so different to for everyone. And I think that's a really big part of what we we believe in. We want to cultivate these spaces for people to be able to come and be themselves and not be judged. More importantly, just raising awareness when we bring this community together, right? And really learning from our community too. You know, like we're not we're not there to save the day. That's not our goal. Right. Our goal is to really work with the community so that everyone can save their own day. Everyone's day is defined by themselves and nobody can define that. Right. And so I think that's really kind of our that, that is really like what we believe in. It sounds like you're so. looking to hold a container that's safe for everybody, not just in the future generations, but today. Is that kind of the imagery that works for you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think um, transforming generations were really like 
trying to build roots. So we're not we're not there to be like, hey, we're the experts. We know all this stuff and we're going to teach you this. It's more of like, what can we all do as a community to help each other, to support each other? Do you have any specific examples? Yeah, so um, last December 2016, there was actually a global summit in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where we all went. And we met so many amazing Hmong women and Hmong individuals from overseas. And it, it was really just a summit to learn from each other. That, you know, and to really see, like, even though we are from all different parts of the world, we see violence the same way. We experience violence the same way. And we have different systems, but we all, as a Hmong community, we see violence and we experience it the same way. So how can we all work together, right? Because we are still a community no matter where we go. And so we, we learned a lot from them, from the sisters from overseas. This was before my time in Transforming Generations. So I already knew a lot of folks that were in Transforming Generations. And so it really just builds like that network and that collection of people. So that wherever you go, you feel safe. You feel like you can still impact, change and be impacted. Thank you. Well, we talked a little bit before about what helps with healing and you talked about your process and how much you needed to heal. And you also talked about affirming yourself. I think you may have used a different word, but can you tell us a little bit about what te techniques or what, what ladder you chose to the path of healing? Yeah, so for me, healing really is how I can level myself or how I can ground myself. I'm really just being able to take a step back from all of the craziness that's going on in my life and, and just really being like, hey, who are you? What makes you feel at peace? And and what do you do, you do to make yourself feel at peace? It sounds kind of like a combination of spiritual practice and pragmatism. It's, it's definitely both. I think that I needed to heal spiritually to be able to be back into this reality that's that's going on i didn't speak about this a little bit but um but i can um so my child he is a survivor of violence um and so he was abused by his biological father when he was an infant and so due to that abuse he has a lot of um medical needs and so that was very hard especially as a young mom um and especially because i was going I was in school at the time, too, and so it was, you know, you can imagine, right, like, being in school and having kids or not even having kids and how stressful that is. So he is a survivor. You know, I think during these difficult times, like, the question that I kept asking was why. Not why did this happen to me or why me or, or why him. Um, it was more of, like, why did, this, why did this happen? What is the cause? Like, what could have prevented this that was out of my control and as I analyze this and I begin to heal and begin to be able to pull the dots together you know it really really draws down to like patriarchy and how this person felt that he was entitled to do this harm and I think that relates to many many domestic violence cases that it's not isolated to my case only and then this is where you know I talk about learning how to validate myself was a really big part of healing I think I heard from my community a lot, like, why wasn't I home? Why wasn't I supposed to take care of my child? You know, that was my role. Why did I leave? And it was really like what the community thought was good for me and what they wanted. And with that, 
I question myself a lot too as well, you know, like why didn't I stay, right? But I was like, wait, hold on, pause for a second there. It's not my fault, right? My only fault was trusting somebody who I should have trusted. And I think that alone relates to so many survivors and victims. And so that's why I feel, I, I feel like this work is so important to me. And it's such a big part of who I am. When we live and breathe it every day, when, we, when we've experienced these forms of violence and these forms of trauma, that, that really ignites our fire. During those times, I really thought, like, I don't ever want anyone to go through or experience what I've been through. I always picture it and visualize it because I'm a very visual person. And so I always visualize it as being in a deep hole and can't get out. I don't ever want anybody to feel that way, feeling like they're stuck, feeling like they have no control over their lives. That's why this work is so important to me. And that's why our organization is so, has been such a great support for me as well. And then also for our community. I am terribly sorry about your son. I don't know where I would find the strength with such a current and right in my face reminder day to day about the importance mm -hmm. of the work that I did. Congratulations on finding the strength. You mentioned your mom as a role model. And yes. my guess is your mom deserves a great deal of credit for installing that resilience that you mentioned earlier and the strength within you. Yes, for sure. I mean, every time I feel like I can't do anything, I'm always like, wait, hold on. My mom did it. I can do it. You know, if she could have done it, you know, I'm way more privileged than she is. I can definitely do it. Did you have mentors? And I asked a little bit about what, how did you find your way out of healing? And obviously what happened is huge. It was almost like an atomic bomb. But how did people help you or your community help you get out of that mess? Gosh, um, I think being offered this, this job um, when I was in Eau Claire was really like the first step to to that. I remember one of the directors from a, from a partner agency that we've worked with in Wisconsin, um, I met her for the first time and she asked, what's your story? And, and I was like, what? Like, what is that? Why are you asking that? And it was like so eye-opening for me. I think that was the aha moment for me. I will always remember it. I was like, wow, nobody has ever asked me what my story was. And to just listen, to just sit there and and listen, I think that was really one of those moments where, I'm, where I was like, wow, I want to do that. I wouldn't say I've had mentors or like a mentor. I would say that all of the women that I've met through this work and men and those who don't identify have inspired me in, in every way with the work that they do. We're grateful for your strength. I'm sure your family is too, although... Sometimes communities like to point a finger of blame so they can get away from the problem. And it sounds to me like you experienced that early on. And I'm sorry for that too, because the damage to one's psyche is humongous. Mm -hmm. But yeah. you look like a really strong woman now. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of us, um, not just me, you know, a lot of Hmong women and Hmong men included, we've all experienced that. It really does shape us and shape who we are. I'm wondering how, Pei, about your commitment to ending assault and if it has its roots in active nonviolence, 
This is a program about the lives of people who have decided to make their lives count and to let us know that there is a way to live a life of nonviolence and do it intentionally. So I'm curious as to how you were able to make your quest in your life of helping others through social work and mental health issues. You mentioned earlier it was kind of your healing was part of a pragmatic and spiritual journey, but is it more pragmatic or is it more spiritual now? Can you make a distinction or can you tell us a little bit about it? I think it goes hand in hand. I wouldn't say that it's one or the other. In order to do the work that I do physically, and being realistic about what can happen, what are the options, and then also realizing like what are the barriers. And those are more like pragmatic stuff, right? And, and then um, being spiritually okay with myself, validating myself. There are things that I can't do, you know? And, and yes, I'm not a perfect person, but realizing that um, and then realizing that I need to be kind of spiritually inclined with myself to be able to project the work that I do. Do you have any stories to tell about your healing or when the aha moments happen, maybe with somebody else's healing? I don't know. I feel like there's there's so many. I mean, I can speak with my experience with a youth. She had disclosed something to me, and I think that was such an aha moment for her being so young and experiencing something so traumatic. And I think really her building that trust with me was was not, I didn't go to her and um, ask her like, hey, what happened to you? We really um, got closer and built that rapport, doing hobbies that we enjoyed together. And me being like twice her age, I felt like, could I relate to this youth? Like, could I really have interests that she has or you know does she have interests that I have we have we're so I'm so much older you know and I think really just treating her like a person first really allowed her to be able to disclose and I think disclosure is also really important in healing I think a lot of people don't disclose because they either don't self-identify or they just keep telling themselves that it didn't happen or that it they just um, undermine it, like it's not important. Yeah, I can see that. I can see where treating somebody who is young as an equal, who has mm -hmm. a great deal to offer, would wake up her and probably wake up you mm -hmm. in your healing process. Yeah. There's nothing more satisfying than being part of somebody else's journey. At least I haven't found many things. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we'll go to this question. Can you tell us about a time when you felt short of being the activist or things didn't work out exactly the way you thought they should be? And what happened? I think things never work out exactly how we want it. We have to have that flexibility to be able to navigate or um, to be able to adapt. I think that's the word. <laughs> to be able to adapt to certain situations, right? With Hmong folks, and I'm only speaking for my community, like we have so much resilience as a group of people throughout our history we've experienced oppression from another group or a higher group and we've been able to assimilate and we've been able to adapt we've migrated all over the world across the world and I think that is part of who we all are as Hmong folks being able to adapt to things that we can't control and to things that happen really really plays a big part in activism too, you know, policies are always changing. The community is always changing. And we have to be able to 
know how to adapt to our changing community and changing policies, making sure that we're still in align with, with our mission and our goal. That can also be a part where we fall short is that policy is always changing and our community is always changing. We could be like, wow, we changed this policy to help our community. And then tomorrow something changes within our community. And so we're like, okay, now back to square one. And these are things that are kind of out of our control. And then also just not having the support that is needed in our community to be able to even do this work. Before we can even go to the larger community to talk about our issues and make that change, we have to talk to our community first. And if they don't want to listen to us, how are we going to go out there and talk about the issues and barriers with our with our community. So what you need from the greater community of Hmong folks, specifically in the Twin Cities, is a, a space for listening, a space for awareness, um, and I hear uh, a hope for activism too. Yeah, and you know, not just any space. I mean, this space has to be safe. If we want to provide space for our community to come and, and talk and so we can listen, I mean, any kind of space can be created. We have to be mindful and strategic about how we want to have this space, who we want to invite to this space, and if they come to this space, is it going to be toxic? Because that's not our goal. We're not going to create a venting station, right? We really want to listen to the issues and be able to bring that back and strategize how we can make a change. How can the rest of us who are not part of the culture that you are here very generously as a representative, and maybe we haven't experienced the similar violence, maybe we have, but what can we do that would be useful and helpful? Yeah, I would say what people need the most is for people to listen to hear and not listen to respond. We're not there to save the day, that outsiders shouldn't feel like they need to come and save us. We in our community, we need to learn how to save ourselves. As you stand for or as you represent the victims of sexual assault or um, domestic assault, sexual crimes, what would you say to the world at large? I think I would say that these are things that we can't control. Only the people who do it can control it. We can only control how we react to it. And I think this goes for the whole world. And maybe we can't control in the moment, but we can control the next day. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's lovely. Thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your bravery and your strength and your willingness to bring forth these ideas. Truly, it has been a real pleasure. Thank you. for listening to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or give us a call at 651-917-0383.